going to split my message in two parts tonight, knowing we've just had Christmas dinner, um, with a hymn in between. Um, forgive me, but the first part is going to be called Darkness, and the second part, Light. Um, the first part has one scene, the second part has two scenes. And our eyes this afternoon are focusing on this elderly man, Simeon, for us to endeavour to grasp something of this pivotal event in Earth's history. We must first seek to understand the time where Simeon was living in. We've looked at the actual physical scene, but this is now looking at more the spiritual scene and the cultural scene. Each scene starts with a G, and I'm just going to ask the children uh, that they will spot the word as I start giving the message that you think fits with a G and four letters for the first one. So directly you think you've spotted it, just shoot your hand up. Okay? <laughs> Some good guessing going on, no doubt. <laughs> right, so here goes. The prophet wrote, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Now that's God's take on what the time was like that we, our story is set in when Jesus is born. A time of darkness, a land in deep God darkness. This was God's verdict on the situation in Israel at that first Christmas. This was a time of deep gloom, not that everyone in Israel felt they were in darkness, just as men and women today. It is gloom. It is gloom. Well done. She was. Is that what you thought before? No. Right. <laughs> so a good job we didn't ask, wasn't it? It's not a very common word, is it? Um, gloom and darkness. Some people are very gloom. Gloom. If you know the story of Winnie the Pooh, which character in Winnie the Pooh would be characterised by gloom? Eeyore, yes, absolutely. Eeyore. Not that everyone in Israel would have thought they were in darkness, just as in their own land. We know the world's sitting in darkness, but many people won't, don't really understand that at all. So the prophet tells us that in God's sight this was a time of gloom and darkness. Indeed, any Jewish person with any sense of spiritual reality would have realised that God had given them up to their own dreams and aspirations as they would not bow the knee to God. Sadly, God makes it clear in his word that this is exactly the situation today. God, in his righteous anger against sin, has given men and women up to their own devices However, we must remember that at the same time, our infinite God is also merciful and compassionate and longing for rebels in repentance to be reconciled to him through Christ. We must always hold that concept of God. God doesn't change. He's not emotional. He's constant. And whilst his anger is being poured out because of his... Wrath isn't an attribute of God. The attribute of God is righteousness and holiness and justice and therefore, where sin is, wrath will be forthcoming from God. But at the same time, he's totally loving, totally compassionate, totally kind, wanting men and women to turn to him. 
For us to grasp the wonder of its unfolding story, we must spend a little time seeking to understand the nature of this darkness. The darkness can be viewed in several ways. First of all, there was the political gloom. Political gloom. It is difficult to imagine the gloom that covered Israel. The darkness of the Roman occupation with their secular idolatry was suffocating the people. Even the temple compound had some form of Roman fault overlooking it. That's probably what you can see right at the very end uh, in the artist's imagination. At least the Roman occupation was more benign or kind than some of Israel's oppressors of recent centuries. There had been Antiochus Epiphanes who had desecrated the temple and destroyed the priesthood. There had been a time of warfare and turbulence. But at least the Romans allowed the Jews some independence, despite the fact that Herod himself was a bloodthirsty tyrant. So the darkness was characterised by political gloom. This darkness was also characterised, sadly, by divine silence. <coughs> Simeon was living in a day when the Jewish nation was resting under the judgement of God. The last prophet spoke 400 years earlier and warned the people that God's hand would be heavy against them for their sin. But yet, ultimately, he would show mercy. Since Ezekiel's day, God had withdrawn the glorious manifestation of his presence from the temple. What a sad state. From what I can gather, and you can do your own research, the Holy of Holies in the temple was empty. The Ark of the Covenant, Mercy Seat, Cherubim and other holy objects were not there. The Urim and Thummim, which provided revelatory contact with God, was not there. And definitely the Shekinah glory of God was not there as it had been in the tabernacle and Solomon's temple. Think of it, there have been 400 years of silence from God. It reminds me of that unbelieving thief on the cross. The most sad state, God didn't, Jesus didn't have a single word to say to him. The heavens were as brass. There was silence from heaven. There was no word from the Lord. The gulf between God and his people was being filled by the emptiness of the Jewish religion, built upon the tradition of the elders, a religion built upon self-righteousness and works. So the darkness was characterised by political gloom and by divine silence. Secondly, or thirdly now, it was characterised by spiritual incomprehension or lack of understanding, spiritual lack of understanding. We may have at times been shown an optical illusion. I was looking at one yesterday, uh, an optical illusion, and you're told you're supposed to see something in it. I, I'm no good at those. You know, they tell you there's a deer there, there's a leopard there or something. Anybody good at those? So-so, Daniel. Right. Well, when I get stuck, I'll have to ask you. Um, I find those very difficult. There are hundreds of prophecies of the coming Messiah, but even the prophets through whom the words of the Lord came were often mystified. Peter says, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that will come to you, searching what or in what manner of time the spirit of Christ was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. For the rabbis or any devout Jew studying the prophets, there were many mysteries 
Now, don't let your mind go off on tangents. I'm just painting a picture. So, according to the prophets, would Messiah be from Egypt, or from Nazareth, or from Bethlehem? On one hand, the prophecies said Messiah would be glorious, and on the other hand, a suffering man. Would the Messiah be a lion, or a lamb? And how could the Messiah come from the legal kingly line of David when Jack and I had been cursed by God and told that there would never be a king in Israel from that legal lineage? And there are many other mysteries if you've just been trying to study the prophecies and work out what the Messiah would be and when he would come, where he would come. Just consider how Isaiah himself would have grappled with the prophecy he was given. Consider these well-known verses and think of Isaiah writing these. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. Having seen the fulfilment of this prophecy, we still grapple with these mysterious providences. The mighty God the everlasting Father, even after the birth of Jesus, we still see faithful servants trying to grapple with what the Messiah would look like. See John the Baptist there in prison. From what he'd been told, Jesus didn't seem to be fitting the scene or the picture. And so he sends disciples to find out whether this was truly the Messiah. Many, many Jewish schools were teaching about a Messiah who would come and deliver Israel, viewed through the prism of Jewish nationalism. So the darkness was characterised by political gloom, divine silence, spiritual incomprehension. But it was also characterised by man's futile attempts. With the absence of divine revelation and God's judgement on his people, the Pharisees were working overtime to bolster their religion and their idea of Jewish identity. There were also other movements in Israel seeking to fill the void. Now, at the same time, many Jews were enthralled by this magnificent new temple being built by Herod. At last, an assertion of Jewish identity and the idolatrous hope that this temple would again bring God's blessing. This superstitious approach would surely be in line with Jewish thinking over many generations. Remember how they took the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, into battle, thinking that that in some way would bring them luck. How in Jeremiah's day, he accused them of trusting in the temple. They say, the temple, the temple, you've got the temple, we're all right. Rather than realising it was God's presence, that it was, was important. This temple had been in construction for ten years already. 1,000 priests working six days a week and they will continue to work on it for another 65 years. So it wasn't long after that before it was totally destroyed. It was being built by Herod the Great who had been appointed by the Romans. In spite of all the grief and fear he brought, Herod was a master builder. And the temple with the Temple Mount was the crowning jewel of his achievements. Its size was enormous covering an area of 40 acres. Now I find these things difficult to imagine. Herod employed 10,000 men, largely slave labour, 
along with Roman craftsmen and took approximately 10 years to build the Temple Mount complex. Some of the quarried limestones ranged from 3 to 30 feet long and from 3 to 6 feet high. These stones weighed from 1 to 40 tonnes each. And Lee thinks he's got a problem with the fencing panels. No wonder the Jews thought the temple virtually indestructible. Herod's goal in rebuilding the temple was to create one of the most magnificent buildings in his day and in the process to try and please his subjects, the Jews. The temple sadly was being built for Herod's glory and not God's glory. The temple will be Herod's crowning achievement and for many in Israel it was their pride and identity. But as in all life, where the desire to honour God is missing. People are building their lives, however worthy, on a sandy foundation. But as in all life, where the desire to honour God is missing, people are building their lives, however worthy, on a sandy foundation. I wonder whether Jesus had the temple in mind when he spoke of the wise and foolish builders, when he knew that in not many years' time, that temple, with all its magnificence and sense of indestructibility, would be laid waste and brought down to the ground. Quote, to finish this section, Mankind's futile attempts to deal with the shifting tide of political power and religious belief have produced very little. Israel was in a kind of spiritual bondage that was even worse than her political bondage. The rise of various parties and movements was evidence of a sincere search for some final solution to her problem. All seemed to have failed. The stage of history was dark. The situation was indeed desperate. The nation sat in darkness. So the darkness, characterised by political gloom, divine silence, spiritual incomprehension and man's futile attempts. And after the hymn, we will move to the light. Right, let's sing hymn 125. <coughs> From heaven's eternal throne there came a word, a strong decree. Light up the world with grace and truth and set the captives free.
So part two, and young people, if you're looking out for another G then, please, for the heading for our second part. And so we now notice Simeon and let our camera focus on Simeon. He was among a small minority in Israel who also were hoping for something, or rather someone. Simeon had been waiting all his life, it seems. He may well have been over 100 years old now. He knew there was no power or hope in the Pharisaic traditions or this magnificent temple. There was no hope there, no strength. The great goal in Simeon's life was to find the promised saviour. <laughs> Well done! Good, good Christmas dinner. Obviously, expected people. <laughs> Gold. Not easy, is it? Gold. It's not a usual word, very, is it? Neither of those are very usual words, gloom or gold, apart from the West Ham supporter or children. But anyway. <laughs> well, they don't score goals. No, right. Um, but uh, it's quite obvious that this was a goal in Simeon's. Life by what he says in his prophetic words he spoke. He knew it was only Emmanuel could bring hope in the time of doubt. Only Emmanuel could bring peace in time of fear. He knew it was only Emmanuel when life reaches moments of desperation. The only hope is Emmanuel. Simeon may well have cherished Isaiah 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So Simeon had faith that in the midst of this darkness and superstition, God's silence, God's absence from his people, there was hope. God would visit his people again in mercy. His faith rested on God's word alone. And that's where our faith must always rest. God had opened up the prophecies to him in the most wonderful way, obviously, and given him such faith that he saw beyond the promises, just being for the nation of Israel, but a redeemer for all mankind. Simeon's own name provides a clue as to how he approached these prophecies. His name means to hear intelligently. That may be a problem for some of us, but that's what his name meant. Simeon is portrayed as deliberately listening to God's Spirit. We're told that the Holy Spirit rested on him, verse 25. The Holy Spirit showed things to him, verse 26. And the Holy Spirit moved him, verse 27. Intelligent listening meant that Simeon discerned the difference between his own impulses and the leading of God. It meant being willing to take in the difficult messages, not just what he wanted to hear. And it meant stepping out in obedience, acting on what he heard. He must have been given much grace to accept that God would be merciful to the Gentiles. Just think of the problem Jonah had had. Like Simeon, there were others who were spiritually awakened, who loved and studied the scriptures and were looking for the consolation or comfort of Israel. They understood that God would send a comforter, a saviour. They, like Abraham, looked for a city not made with hands. We meet others in the New Testament who were of this small group 
of godly men and women. Now, I could stop and ask, but we won't. But I wonder what your mind will go to. We see Anna also in the temple. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So there were others in Jerusalem that were looking for spiritual redemption, not just an earthly messiah. We see Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who himself was waiting, we're told, for the kingdom of God. Coming and taking courage went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, if you remember. Three lovely phrases here. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the deliverer. Waiting for redemption. Simeon would have memorised many prophetic passages from the scriptures. He believed that the true light would appear as prophesied in Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. He believed that their Messiah would engage in a spiritual victory over Satan and the powers of darkness. We read in John, Genesis 3, verse 15, He will bruise Satan's head. We're told Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel, who probably knew well, may well have memorised that Isaiah passage. Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. While many devout Jews were looking for an earthly Messiah, Simeon undoubtedly understood the great prophecy of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Did those last lines resonate with Simeon as he walked to the crowds through that busy temple? We have turned every one to his own way. Simeon also had a clear persuasion from the prophets that the Messiah who would be born would be the son of the highest. He would be the mighty God, the everlasting father. Now even the apostle Paul said that this is a great mystery, that the eternal, infinite second person of the Godhead, who upholds all things by the word of his power, would not cease to be what he always had been, but become what he hadn't been, a man. <coughs> that the eternal, infinite, second person of the Godhead, who upholds all things by the word of his power, would not cease in any way to be what he always had been, but become what he hadn't been, a man. So Simeon was looking for spiritual salvation, available for all peoples on the earth, to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. So we have considered the gloom, We've considered Simeon's goal. And now, our final G. Are we ready? G and three letters. At some time earlier in his life, Simeon received a revelation from God saying he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. This was extraordinary and exciting news. But Simeon didn't pester God with questions like, are you sure, God? Is it time yet, God? 
How much longer, God? Simeon was content to wait for this amazing gift. Then, Izzy. Was it Chloe or Izzy? Kieran, was it? Kieran. Gift, absolutely, yes. I wasn't easy spotting hands and reading at the same time. Well done, Kieran, and those elders that put their hands up. Gift. Then one day when business was as usual in the streets of the city, in the marketplace, the bustle of the tourists and the worshippers in the temple compound, Simeon was brought by the Spirit to the temple. And there among the crowds he was directed by the Spirit to a teenage couple, dressed in very poor clothes, carrying a baby. Wow, how his heart leaped for joy. Around him the crowds thronged with their eyes only for the temple. They were blind to the fact that the one greater than the temple had come. As he looks Mary and Joseph in the eyes and puts out his arms to take the baby, Mary is given a supernatural assurance that she must hand over Jesus to this kindly man. So Simeon takes Jesus and embraces him with faith and love and hope. Simeon is not witnessing a political movement or a military revolt. He's not experienced a revival of strict law-keeping led by the Jewish religious, religious leaders. All that Simeon has longed for is now revealed in this baby, in his arms, Emmanuel, God with us, mystery of mysteries. He then utters these prophetic words, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. He clearly understood that here was Emmanuel, God with us, in not some mysterious Shekinah glory as he had resided among his people in the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple, but now in the flesh. God was now tabernacled among men, Yes, that grand temple no longer had the symbolic glory of God presence as the tabernacle formerly had. But here was Almighty God now tabernacled among men. Simeon, with eyes of faith, now saw the salvation that for centuries prophets and godly men and women had sought to understand. In that act of embracing the babe, he provided a striking visual of not just meeting Jesus, but receiving him to himself. As Simeon gazed into the brand new eyes of the Ancient of Days, Christ for him went from being God with us to God with me. Comfort has no real meaning until general truth takes on concrete, personal dimensions. I'll read that again. In the act of embracing the babe, he provided a striking visual of not just meeting Jesus, but receiving him to himself. As Simeon gazed into the brand new eyes of the ancient of days, Christ for him went from being God with us to God with me. 
Comfort has no real meaning until general truth, truth takes on personal dimensions. As Simeon is embracing Christ physically and in faith, perhaps nearby in the temple, some worshipper is laying their hands on an innocent animal, symbolising that they are laying their sin on that sacrifice. But Simeon understands that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But the one cradled in his arms was the lamb provided by God before the foundation of the world to take away sin. God had told Father Abraham, God will provide himself a lamb. So like all of us, Simeon had a choice. Would he embrace the saviour? Or reject him? Would Simeon look to Jesus to provide for him true peace with God? But what do you think? It's obvious, isn't it? Then why perhaps maybe some of you have not yet embraced Christ? Simeon was soon facing death. Where was his hope? He knew there was no strength in the temple, the temple, or the rules and regulations of the Pharisees. He knew there was no eternal gain in having amassed much wealth and built mighty buildings. His mind goes back to Isaiah 53. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of Simeon. By his stripes, Simeon is healed. Simeon has peace with God. Before time began, God had been preparing a wonderful salvation, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. All the mysterious prophecies about the coming Messiah came to full fruition in Jesus Christ and clarity. The darkness is lifted, the light has come in the knowledge of Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. After that long silence of 400 years, God is once again speaking, and this time in Christ. God is once again among his people, and when Christ ascended into heaven, God would forever be tabernacled among his people, dwelling in him, in them through his spirit. The conclusion then that we must face up to this evening is this. Who are we identifying with? All the crowds on that sunny day, busy about their commercial and religious lives? Herod, with his temple building? All those trusting in their own futile attempts to fill a God-shaped void? Like the foolish builder, all those hopes would come and will come crashing down. Even that temple would be flattened in AD 70. Are you content for God to be absent from your life as he was from Israel? He in mercy is still speaking to you, but the day may come that he stops speaking as he did with that thief on the cross, as he did with Israel. Are you oblivious to the fact that God's wrath is resting on us in our rejection of Christ? Or will you, like Simeon of old, embrace him as your saviour, as the one who will cleanse you from all your rebellion and dwell with you through eternity. Will you rest your hand on his head, transferring your sin to him, the Lamb of God, 
Put your arms out to Christ this evening. Embrace him. Hold on to him for all eternity. If you do, he has promised never to let you go. Very clearly from a human perspective, this evening, the choice is yours. Are you now embracing Christ?